0: Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James, and today we're going to consider the fourth chapter of James, verses 4 through 10. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible and ask you to follow silently in whichever version of the Bible you might have with you today. James chapter 4, beginning with verse 4. You adulteresses, you do, not, do you not know that your friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Perhaps as you've driven around the city, you've seen a billboard, which is adopted as a slogan for a local church here in our city. And it simply says, God is on your side. Now that's a comforting thought, if we understand how it is, that God is on our side, or how we get to be on His side. However, it can be a misleading statement because not all of humanity is on God's side. This passage of Scripture is rather clear in explaining who's on His side and who's against Him. We'll begin with the negative. God is not on our side if we love the world. We see this in verse 4. Look at it again. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Perhaps you know in the book of 1 John, chapter 2, the Bible clearly explains the three aspects of the world. Also in that same book in the 5th chapter, The Bible tells us that the whole world, that means the world system, lies in the control of the evil one. In other words, Satan is the one who controls. The devil is the one who is the master of this world system. And there are three aspects of it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The last one is the one which is Mentioned here in this passage of Scripture, which God opposes. God opposes the proud. The boastful pride of life. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, listen to what God says to the prophet. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not a strong man boast of his strength. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he knows me and understands me. There's only one legitimate object of boasting in anybody's life. And that is that we have become privileged to know God. Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God and we know God Through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, and He is the avenue which one must travel in order to know God. So, we are people who must not love the world. Perhaps you've wondered before, where did the devil come from? Well, he was created by God. And he was perfect when he was created. We read about it in Ezekiel chapter 28. Perfect. He was the anointed cherub of all the angelic beings. All of them. Which would suggest he was the chief angel. And he fell into the problem of pride. And his pride got him eliminated. He was ejected. From heaven by God. And in the process, he took one third of all the angels with him, and we now know them as demons. Satan's pride got him. I like what C.S. Lewis' statement of this is. He said, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. He goes on to say, Pride leads to every other vice. He's right. Pride is the grandpappy of all other sins. In the Garden of Eden, where this being whom we know as Satan dwelled, he inhabited a serpent, the serpent comes, speaks to Eve, and says, If you will eat of this one tree which God has forbidden you to eat, if you will take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you will be like God. That's what hooked her. She was resistant for a while but she finally was caught in the trap of Satan. The snare of the devil which is appealing to our pride. Do you know the devil hasn't changed? Thousands of years later he's still doing the same thing. He appeals to us in the area of our pride. I'd like to read a few things that C.S. Lewis says about pride. See if any of them makes sense to you. He says in his book, Mere Christianity, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more than everyone else. People are proud because they're richer or more clever or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes us proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Have you ever stopped to think that if you're always looking down on things or people, then you don't ever look up. You're always looking down. And pride always looks down, never looks up. Pride causes people to believe they're equal with God. People become their own gods as a result of pride. Amazing. One last thing that C.S. Lewis writes in this matter. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular. And no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have pride in ourselves, the more we dislike pride in others. We're blind to our own pride. Let me ask you a question. Do you find it necessary to have the last word in every discussion? The last word in every matter in your circle whether it's in the circle of your home, your workplace, your church, friends? Are you someone who, if overlooked by others, if you feel snubbed, if you're in a group like at the gathering out here, for instance, and someone seemingly is in another zone and they walk right by you and you know they know you and it bugs you? Well, welcome to the crowd, by the way. It's not nice to be snubbed, is it? But what we do not know in our limited knowledge, we don't know what's going on in the mind of that person who passes by. And so what? Who are we focusing on when we get upset about that? Are we focusing on the Lord? Are we focusing on somebody else? We're focusing on ourselves. And do you know, you and I make very poor gods and goddesses. We're not that adorable as much as we think we are. So we need to understand that God is not on our side if we love the world, especially if we are people who are subject to pride. And I doubt there's a person present who does not at times give in to pride. God opposes the proud. That's what this text teaches us. If we were to go one book deeper into the New Testament, the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes essentially the same thing. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He goes on to say, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and then you will be exalted at the proper time. People who are humble are people who are not interested primarily in being exalted. To the contrary, what they're more interested in is that God would be exalted in their lives, that God would be praised, and that others' needs would be met by God through those people who are humble. God is on our side if we humble ourselves before Him. This passage gives us the pathway to humility. And it's given in three basic ideas which are encompassed in verses 7-7. Through nine, Here's the first idea. That we submit ourselves to God. Look at verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. What does it mean to submit oneself to God? It means to surrender yourself to God. As far as you're able to determine, you don't reserve anything for yourself. You give yourself fully to the Lord. And when you do that with the light which God has given you, as to what that means, when you do that, you have submitted yourself to God. I think of some men in Scripture whose names are familiar to all of us. Two of the prominent people in the Bible. In the Old Testament, King David. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And King David concludes one of the beautiful Psalms which the Spirit of God gave him and which has been passed down and preserved for us even to this day, 3,000 years, imagine that, after it was first penned, passed down to us. And what we see here in closing the 143rd Psalm, he simply signs off to God by saying, I am your servant. That's what it means to be submitted to the Lord, to be His servant. The Apostle Paul introduces many of his letters by saying, I am the bondservant of Christ. A bondservant is one who is a slave by volunteering to be a slave to another. And this idea of submission, you voluntarily submit to God and you become the servant of the Lord. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Peter puts it this way in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. In other words, put yourself in a position of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, the third beatitude reads as follows, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. The word gentle is a word which was used outside the New Testament to describe the breaking of a wild stallion so that the one who breaks the stallion is able to mount the stallion and ride without any resistance on the part of this powerful steed. And this is what God wants to do in our lives. He wants us to submit ourselves to Him. When we submit ourselves to Him, He in fact is our Lord. He is our Master. And there's no better Master than He. He's a wonderful master. He's not tyrannical. He's not despotic. He doesn't try to just crush us. In fact, He does quite the opposite. He elevates us. He helps us to recognize who we are. We have been chosen in Christ by none other than the God of the universe to be His sons and His daughters. We are elevated not to our own detriment or not to diverting people's attention away from God, but to the acknowledgement of That we are sons and daughters, princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. This is the kind of Lord we have. And the beginning point of humility, this pathway to having God on our side, is to submit ourselves to Him. The second aspect of this pathway to humility is that we seek the Lord. Amos quotes God as saying, Seek me and live. There is no life, actually, that is of any value apart from seeking the Lord. And then God Himself says in the book of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13, You will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. We have to seek Him with a whole heart. Do you get the picture? There is this emphasis on wholeheartedly seeking the Lord. Look at this passage. The first part of verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That means to seek the Lord. Now, that which I am passionate about, I spare no energy in my seeking after. Is that true of you? Think about what your passion is. Have you got it? Do you spare any energy in seeking that thing or that person? Not at all. If you love hunting, your mind's on hunting. Some of you in here are hunters. You can't wait for the season to open. You're thinking about it. Every spare moment, you're thinking about your favorite sports team. You're thinking about the acquisition of some item or getting a better job so you can make more money and have a greater lifestyle, as the world would describe what constitutes success. We are passionate about that which we seek. We draw near to it. We pursue it. That's the idea. And what the Scripture says is characteristic of the person who has God as his friend or her friend. That person is one who seeks the Lord. He draws near, she draws near to God. And God draws near to us in the process. So you see, it's in large measure our responsibility to seek the Lord. Listen to what God says through the prophet Isaiah. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That suggests that we will not have a limitless amount of time to seek the Lord. There's a tendency for us to keep putting off and putting off and putting off seeking the Lord, drawing near to the Lord, submitting to, the God, to God. We think we'll do it someday, but someday seems to never come. It's so elusive for us. We're to seek the Lord while He may be found. And he goes on to say, in giving us more understanding of what it means to seek the Lord in Isaiah 55, 6, He says, call on Him while He is near. Call on Him. Part of seeking the Lord is calling on Him. Perhaps you remember the parable that is recorded in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, where Jesus tells about a man who has spent his entire life searching for a pearl of great value. And in his pursuit... He finds one. When He finds it, He buries it. Then He goes and sells all that He has and He comes back and He gives everything that He owns to buy that pearl of great price. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like is what Jesus says. And what He's saying is, seek God. Seek Me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is that pearl of great price. And you don't hold anything back. You give it all to the Lord. How do you measure up to that standard of seeking after God? Seeking Him with a whole heart. The first step, and the first step's the most important one. You can't bypass the first one and go into number two and number three. That's what a lot of people try to do. Because the idea of submission is not a pleasant idea. Because we want to be in control. Isn't that correct? And Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. You know what the word be still literally means? Drop your hands and know that I am God. Remember that the only thing we can boast about is knowing God. And we know how important that is that we know Him and seek Him, pursue Him, submit to Him. We're to submit to Him to our Lord. Submit, number one. Seek, number two, on the pathway. Here's the third one. Repent of any known sin in your life. Do you know what repentance means? We're in the middle of a professional baseball season and my favorite baseball player is Matt Carpenter. He's a left-handed hitter like I would be if I still could swing a bat. I never could swing one like him. In the last, let me count them, six games, he's hit eight home runs. Eight home runs. That's amazing. That may mean nothing to you, but that means a lot to me. <laughs> but when a pitcher throws the ball at his bat and he makes a solid connection, that ball repents It goes in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is. Literally, it's the word which means to change your mind, resulting in a change of direction. You change your mind when you become aware of unconfessed, unrepented of sin in your life. And instead of going your way, you go His way. You follow Jesus, which is a winning proposition under any Circumstance. So look at what he says about this in the middle of James 4, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. This is symbolic of being clean on the outside of your person. In other words, using your body in a way that honors God. Your hands, of course, but any part of your body. The Bible says... Stop presenting the members of your body, meaning the parts of your body, to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your body parts as weapons of righteousness to God. That's what Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 6. We're to have that kind of turning over of our bodies. And we have to acknowledge to the Lord that we have unclean hands. And we have sinned with our bodies. And we confess that to the Lord. And we repent of it. We change our behavior with the help of the Holy Spirit. We go in the right direction. We follow Christ. It's not just simply about stopping doing something that's sinful. It's about starting to do something that is helpful and honoring to God by following Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and doing as He does and doing as He tells us to do. Look at the next statement. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, God looks at the outward appearance. Man does rather. God does too. But what does God really look at when He assesses our lives? He looks at the heart, doesn't He? And we need to purify our hearts of things that are not true to a person who is a humble person, to be done with those things. He goes on to say, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, that's not a feel-good statement, is it? A lot of people say, I come to church, I've heard people say this, I come to church to feel good. Well, there's not necessarily something wrong with feeling good. I'm not saying that. However, If that's the only reason you come to church, you've missed it big time. If you gather here for any other reason except to worship the living God, then you are settling for something that is very thin in terms of its significance. And what will happen is you will be a person who starves to death spiritually because you're always looking for some kind of junk food instead of that which will only nourish you, that is the Word of God which you are built to crave. And so you can grow. Now, this text talks about turning our mourning into joy, to gloom. And I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. In the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, there is the story of the scribe of Israel. His name was Ezra. He stood early in the morning... In Jerusalem, at the water gate, and he began to read from the book of the law. And it was in Hebrew. The people who had been in exile for 70-ish years, they had changed languages, not because they didn't like Hebrew. It was because in order to get along in Babylon, where they were in captivity, they needed to know the language of Babylon, which was Aramaic, a sister language, but a different language. So, he's reading it, and then there are all these junior scribes scattered among the thousands of people who would have been there, and they were interpreting it to them. They were like a teacher today who might know the languages of the Bible, and in teaching the Bible, that teacher is able to maybe unload some things that are difficult to understand, interpret the Scriptures. And the result was the people began to weep. There was no laughter. They began to mourn. And their weeping and mourning was related to the fact that they knew that their ancestors and some who were present there remembered even their own younger lives. They would have been ancient by that time. But they remembered how their ancestors had ignored the law of God and it had gotten them taken into exile. But the thing which bothered them undoubtedly the most was that their temple, which was the holy of holy Holies of God had been destroyed. Their city had been destroyed. The walls had been torn down. And they realized it was their disobedience, their failure to submit themselves to the Lord by listening to what He had to say in His Word and living it out. That had resulted in all the misery, all the lost decades of their lives. And so, Ezra watched this thing unfold he saw the true repentance in the hearts of the people and he sent a message out to all the scribes and the message was it's not a day now to weep it's not a day to cry now you have responded properly to the word of the lord it's time to rejoice because the joy of the lord is your strength you know the world loves to party I enjoy a party too. I don't know about you. But the one that's worthwhile is partying around the person of the Lord. You say, well, that's good for you, Mike. You're a preacher. We understand that. You're deprived and so forth and so on. Look, I I may be deprived in some ways, but I know what it's like to be in a secular party. I was a college student. I was a president of a social fraternity. And it was pretty interesting and insightful to watch the way my fellow... Fraternity brothers and their dates partied and how they just smashed. They get smashed, I mean. They were out of it. there, And they, they were hung over the next day and all that kind of stuff. Look, the real party is in the kingdom of God. We rejoice. We have freedom to be ourselves. We don't have to pretend trying to make an impression on somebody else. We're not obnoxious, hopefully, but we're real people. The most real people I know are people who are the most spiritual people because they know who they are and they know who God is and they're living the abundant life that Christ has given them to live. Now, what's the outcome of the search? The search for humility, this journey. Well, If you'll look in the middle of verse 8, it says uh, seven at the end of verse 7, excuse me, of James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know what resist literally means? Translated properly, it's stand up. That's all it is. Stand up. Take a stand. In the teaching in Ephesians 6 by Paul, he talks about the importance of being strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. When you couple that with 1 Chronicles sixteen eleven. Where David writes these words, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. We get insight into how we can be strong in the Lord. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 6, 11, 12, and 13, probably three or four times, he says, stand up, stand up, stand up, resist, resist the devil. And then he says, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the belt of truth. We are to be men and women who are men and women of the truth, the Word of God, and the person of Jesus Christ to which the Word of God witnesses, bears testimony. The Spirit of truth points the floodlights on the person of Jesus Christ. We need to be men and women who are not simply hearers of the Word. We are to be doers of the Word. We are to be men and women of integrity based upon our relationship to the Lord. We don't stop by putting on the belt we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. I hope you know that. 1 Corinthians 130 says, Jesus among other things is our righteousness. He is the righteous one, John says in the book of 1 John chapter 2. He is our advocate. He is the one who defends us when we are falsely accused by the devil before the Father. And so we are righteous. We put on the breastplate of righteousness, which in the Roman soldier's life was absolutely necessary because it protected that soldier's vital organs. If he went into battle, he wanted that protection, and it provided that protection. And the thing which provides us, our heart, as it were, protection against the flaming arrows of the evil one, when he accuses us of not being righteous, is The breastplate of righteousness. Who is our righteousness? Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And when the Father looks at me, He sees Christ. He knows better. He knows I'm not Jesus. But He sees me in Christ. It's the place of ultimate safety being in Christ. Are you in Christ? The breastplate of righteousness. Now, I know there's a righteousness gap that is way longer than my arm can stretch away from that arm. If this is righteousness and this is Mike Woods, I don't even come close. But what I do know is over the decades of my walk with Christ, I have grown closer. I don't know how much closer I'm getting closer to the Lord. I'm becoming a lot more like Christ. Why? Because I am seeking to submit myself to the Lord. Now, I don't leave the wrong impression. I don't submit as often and as totally as I should. And there's a reason for that. It's what's called the flesh in my life. The flesh is my personality or your personality outside the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. That's what the flesh is. And my flesh will rear its ugly head quite often in the course of a day, sometimes, sometimes in a week. All of a sudden, I'm having a great week walking with the Lord and boom, out of nowhere, there's this ugly expression of Mike Wood's. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the word weak literally means sick. Yeah, my flesh is sick. That's why Job said, when he finally saw the Lord, until, my, until now my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself, my flesh, and repent in dust and ashes. This is what the problem is in my life. David, who was a man acquainted with outbursts of the flesh, David, in his beautiful Psalm 19, verse 14, says this. He says, Show me, speaking to the Father, my hidden faults. Now, if he were hiding them, trying to hide them from other people, they wouldn't be things he needed to be shown. He would have known them. So these are faults that he had that he was unaware of. He just didn't know them. And you and I have those kind of faults. When I came to Christ I and really fully surrendered to Christ at the age of 21, when I fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ at that point, you know, all of a sudden I became aware of things which I was withholding from the Lord. And I offloaded those to the Lord. I said, Lord, these are not good. These are not right. This is not honoring you. I'm going to be done with those things, Lord. It was such a relief to give my life completely to the Lord to the extent I understood what that meant. But even to this day, I still have things which are revealed to me that I'm unconscious of. Still to this day. And the Lord is gracious enough when I pray that prayer or even when I'm not praying the prayer, if I say to the Lord, Lord, show me my hidden faults, He answers me. He says, okay, there you go. There's the flesh. And He doesn't point a finger like this. He doesn't wag His finger at me. I'm his son. He spanks me. I need it. But he loves me. In that expression that he shows to his love of showing me when I'm wrong. And then I'm, what am I to do? I'm to submit it to the Lord, right? I'm to say, oh, Lord, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I submit it to the Lord. I submit myself in that area, Lord. And then I repent of it, Lord. Please help me not to do it again. He loves to hear those words coming from His children's lives, their mouths. He does. So the good news is we resist the devil by putting on the armor of God. What's the first piece? The first piece, belt of truth. The next piece, the breastplate of righteousness. The third piece, with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. I wish I could spend longer on the rest of these pieces, but let me simply say this. There's a companion verse to that statement about shodding our feet with the gospel of peace. It's found in Romans 1620, another book which Paul wrote, and it says this the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's by the gospel of peace, the good news of Jesus, that God crushes Satan under our feet. When we share Jesus Christ, think about your own passion. Think about your conversation yesterday. Yesterday. Did you take opportunity? To talk about Jesus to anybody yesterday? About the gospel? Think about the last week. And I'm not trying to put anybody on a guilt trip. I'm speaking to myself as mo- much as I am to anybody. What about the last week? How often did you share Jesus with people? Look, the devil hates it when we talk about Jesus to other people, he hates us to teach the gospel. Why? Because he knows his days are limited. His last day will will be when the last person hears the gospel and responds. And then the end will come. And what's going to happen to him in the end? He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire and he's never going away. He's not residing in hell right now. He will be then forever. But he wants to take as many people with him as possible to hell. The way he does it is in part preventing us from sharing Christ with people. So we put on it the sandals of the shoes of the gospel of peace. We take up the shield of faith, which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. We know that faith comes from hearing hearing from the Word of God. So we need to be men and women who listen to the Lord. The next piece is the helmet of salvation. Here again, the devil comes against us. But remember, another thing that is true of Jesus in relationship to you, if you know Christ, is that He is your redemption. He's paid the price. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper in about four or five minutes. And we will be commemorating what Christ did for us when He died on the cross. Remember it. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God comes into play over and over again. We need to be men and women who arm ourselves from head to toe with the armor of God. And in so doing, we resist the devil. And what does the Scripture say he will do? He will flee from you. Here's an important thing to remember. If you're not submitting to the Lord fully, and you're not drawing near to the Lord, every opportunity you have, not just every once in a while, But it's the habit of your life. If you're not doing both of those things, you can forget about resisting the devil and his fleeing from you. It will never happen. That's why some of you struggle so mightily. Because you still reserve full access and sovereignty for yourself instead of the Lord. And then God will exalt you. It's it's very encouraging, isn't it? If God is for you, who? can be against you. How does God get on your side? He gets on your side when you humble yourself under His mighty hand. In Isaiah 66, 2, the prophet writes these words. He says, This is the one to whom I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit. The word contrite That word means broken. Are you broken at the sight of your own sin in your life? Does it disturb you? Well, you're not ready to be a person who really has God on your side until you're ready to make that kind of commitment. he goes on to say, and the person who trembles at my word, when the Lord speaks, what do you do in response? Do you humble yourself? Submit yourself. Seek Him. Repent of your sin. Let's pray. As we come to the Lord's table, our men are coming to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. And would you say with me, this is my prayer. It has to be your personal prayer if it means anything. Lord, I confess that I have been holding back part of my heart from You. And I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. And Lord, today I want to submit myself to You. I want to turn away from my sin and give You full control of my life. Thank You, Lord. Amen. The Lord's Supper is about Jesus submitting Himself fully to the Father. He became obedient. The Scripture says, even to the point of death. And no ordinary death. Death on a cross for you and for me so that we might have eternal life. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we ask you to partake of the Lord's elements. Wait until everyone is served and then we will take of the elements together. Amen. Jesus took the bread and He broke it. He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus then took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.